but that's not enough. It's not enough. You don't have a successful company just because you're great. Just because you make a great product, that doesn't make you a successful company either. There are so many things to have a successful company. You need alignment between sales and technology and training and marketing. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. Well, hello, everyone. On this episode, we have Glenn Lipka, a product leader who's created innovative products for B2B companies since 1995. Glenn has the distinction of being the first employee of Marketo, the best-in-class marketing software acquired by Adobe, and he helped guide the company through IPO up to 1,000 employees in nine years. Glenn holds several patents in design innovations. I'd love to share Glenn's journey from secretary to design leader. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Pac. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's an honor to, to have you on the show. I know we were chatting before we started the interview here, and one of you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think about how you think about design. Sure. And maybe just to repeat some of the stuff we talked about before we got started. To me, design is the decisions that we all make that have lasting consequences for our world. The way you design your office, the way you design an interview for someone else, the way you design your podcast. When do you start? When do you start pressing record? These are all decisions that you make that create the reality. One of the things that we were talking about is a very influential book that I'd read called The Power Broker about this guy, Robert Moses, who controlled beaches, highways, bridges, tunnels, hydroelectric dams, housing in the New York metro area for six or seven decades. And he wielded that power with an iron fist and made many decisions of what now is New York. And almost every city in America came to him and asked him, how did you do it? And he gave them the same blueprint that he was using. He invented eminent domain, which meant he took property away from mostly poor people to create his roads. He created the idea of an authority of where you make a contract with a bank to give yourself power, and then you have tolls on the bridge or the tunnel or the highway to pay back the bank. And that's how you get funds instead of funding it through the government or taxes. And um, all of his innovations created the modern city, but also created the environment of where segregation and difficulty for minorities was baked into the design of, of the city. When you think of city planning, there is a point of view that the person has who is planning. And if it comes from a you know, racist point of view, that design will be baked in for decades. And there's lots of examples of that. And one of my favorites is he made a beautiful beach. He made a highway to that beach. And he made sure that the overpasses were made of heavy stone and were too low for buses or any kind of public transportation to take minorities to the beach. So you needed your own car, which at the time was meant more wealthy, middle-class white people. And then that was how he was devising a way to segregate society. And that was his design. But there's other designs out there of how we have nice computers and how we have some beautiful parts of cities that are 
taking a different point of view. But it, to me, it's all design. That's how I think about it. So whether I'm doing design in a browser, on a mobile phone, or just the decisions we make about how we talk to each other, what is our process? How do we work as a design team? I was just about to publish a blog post on my own site, which was, these are my designs when I have a team. Things like pair designing and always oh, show the prototype and different kinds of processes. So I'm, I've been a warrior in the battle to get designers to take responsibility for their role in society of making these decisions and try to take that power away from product managers and engineers and business people who are making the decisions and therefore making the designs. And I want designers to make those decisions because the designer is the person with the empathy. The designer is the person with the imagination of how might this be? How could this be better? And I want designers to take that responsibility seriously and never say, well, the other person told me to do it this way. My job is to make it look pretty. They won't listen to me. You know, like you don't understand the environment I'm in. You know, they, they won't listen to me. And I don't know if I'm losing this battle over the last two and a half decades that I've been working in this field, but I'm going to keep at it until the day I die. I think that this is the thing that makes our society. It is all of the decisions we make. That's the thing I'm most passionate about. This informs me that designers have to, one, have user empathy, but also have to have some really dig into the domain knowledge because their decisions, you know, if they don't, aren't, aren't intentful about it, could have serious ramifications just because they didn't think about it intently or they just don't know the domain or the industry. It's like, you know. You can say, "Hey, I, you know, maybe they oftentimes will put themselves as a persona because if they don't have that perspective, so they're designing designing for themselves, which you know, depending on their race or class or where they come from, that influences how they they design things." Yeah, I find I find similar things. There's a couple things in what you just said. One of them reminds me of this great blog post by Joel Spolsky, who is one of the first product managers of Excel. And he had his first Bill Gates meeting. And so he had written a spec of what the really the design of Excel. And just as an, you know, to take a quick tangent, if you had never seen Excel before, but you had seen all other kinds of software and you wanted to describe to somebody the UI, they would think you're crazy. I mean, how would you even describe it? Okay, there's there's boxes everywhere and every box has a formula and each formula can refer to another box. And I'd have letters and numbers. Any does anybody today would say, no one is going to get it. It's all <laughs> going to be too confusing. You know, like, are you crazy? This is a weird interface. And it's one of the most popular interfaces in the world. If not the most the popular. Most. <laughs> yeah. And there's never been anything that even comes close to being, there's nothing like a spreadsheet. It's just like, it's either a spreadsheet or it's some other program. A spreadsheet is unique and beautiful. And if you can imagine when it was first being created, not with Excel, but you know earlier incarnations of it, the, imag the imagination required was just amazing. But to jump to Joel Spolsky, he's making a spec for the first version of Excel. And it's thick, hundreds of pages long. And he sends it to all the, the people. 
Come time for the group meeting, Bill Gates comes into the room. Joel looks at Bill Gates's arm and under it is his spec. And not only is it a spec, there's all these little bookmarks taped on the inside. And when he, he realizes he has notes everywhere, all over his spec. And he starts asking questions. They start off as simple, easy questions. And he gets to this one question, which was about, well, are the dates going to be right? You know, are the, all the dates going to be right? And Joel answers, well, yes, except for 1907. And he explains that he had been sitting with the engineer, really going into the details of the thing, and understood a mathematical problem that could not be solved, and went into detail about it and how it was all about 1907. Read his blog post for like the details. I might be getting one or two wrong there. Bill Gates stared at him for a good five seconds, stood up, left the room. What he had later realized was what Bill Gates was doing was saying, do you know the details? Do you know really what's going on? Or are you just messing around? And after that, he didn't even come to the meetings. He knew the program was in good hands. When I have a design team, I have one rule and one rule only. Everything else is a principle or a guideline or a practice. The rule is, if you don't understand it, you can't design it. And you need to understand the engineer's point of view. You need to understand the product manager's point of view. You need to understand the salesperson's point of view. You need to understand the user's point of view, but you also need to understand the buyer's point of view, who isn't the user. Right. And you need to not just understand what they're trying to do. You need to understand what their environment is and how they feel about it. So a great example of this is at Marketo. So I was the first employee there. It was just me and 10 engineers. And there was a project that we did for the first six months, which was a remote control UI for Google AdWords. And I thought this was a bad idea. I didn't think it was going to succeed. And we did it anyway. And one of the things that we had next to it was a landing page editor. And everyone was excited about the Google AdWords thing. So they left the landing page editor up to me. And I thought, why does it have to be like, here's a web page and Wix is kind of like this. You click somewhere and it pops up a tiny MCE modal and you type and bold and whatever and click save and it goes back into the page. I was like, why couldn't it be like PowerPoint where you just, I don't know, you just drag everything around. Why can't making a web page just be like dragging everything around? And these aren't complicated pages. These were landing pages. So it was basically a form and a little bit of text. And so the engineer said, that's hard. We don't know how to do that. And so I had to teach them about absolute positioning in CSS and how JavaScript could be done right. And there was a very influential book at the time called Dynamic HTML Utopia, the HTML Utopia. And that book showed how you can have a cross-platform way of doing the JavaScript. I also introduced them to people who were doing frameworks at the time. This was right as jQuery is becoming popular. And this was well before React and Vue and things like that. But there were frameworks that can be used. So I showed them how. And they came along and they said, fine, fine, fine. It's not that big a deal. So we launched the product. And everyone hated the Google AdWords thing, but they loved the landing page editor. And the CEO said, how did you know that that would happen? And they said, look at the marketer. They hate two people, the salesperson, because they're smug and beautiful and rich, 
and they've got all this money and they're taking all the credit and that the marketer is smarter than them. Then why didn't the marketer get more, you know, cool stuff? And they get to go on club, which is like just this trip to Hawaii for no reason at all. Just like salespeople get to go to Hawaii once a year and that's all there is to it. And the marketer gets nothing and they get paid garbage and they get treated like garbage. And the other person they hated was the web developer because the web developer was also smug, talking in Klingon, telling the marketer that they don't understand how web web pages work and they don't understand how to do things. And the marketer is just like, hey, I need to change a sentence on the page. And the web developer is like, oh, we're going to have to invalidate the cache and you don't want to have your SEO changed to blah, blah, blah. And it just made them miserable. So when we said, oh, it's a remote control for Google AdWords, their resume has one skill on it. Google AdWords, that's their one skill. Ordering t-shirts is not a skill. And so what do you want them to do? Cross that off and say, we use weird little you know, startup you've never heard of, but the landing page editor, now they can say they know how to make landing pages. They didn't know how to do that before. That's a skill. Right. You gave them a superpower. Yeah. And then I said, why don't we give them everything they need to be a programmer? Like get rid of the web developer. And that the use case was a fairly simple one, which was, I've got a white paper. I want to email it to somebody, but I want to get their name first. So I need a page that says the white paper, a form that I collect their email address. I want the, that information to go to Salesforce. And then I want to send them an email. And then maybe if I could wait a week, I could send them another email. This was impossible to do in 1990, sorry, in 2005. Impossible. Like not without programmers. Right. Not without programmers. So I broke down that pro- problem and it was a fairly big problem. Like first I need to have a form editor. I need a landing page editor to put the form on. And I need an email editor to send the email. And I need a a glue to like say the workflow part. And I looked at tools that were out there. There was one called Eloqua, which was incredibly hard to use. They were like SAP, you know, like very, very hard. You probably paid millions of dollars to implement it or responses still to this day, same thing. I said, no, let's just make it so that it'd be easy for them. And now everyone at Marketo was like, but how, how do we make that easy? And I said, well, let's break it down. And each step of the way, I showed them how it could be made easier. And the way that I did it was by thinking, what does the computer need? What information does the computer need? And then if I'm just a person and I'm just thinking this is magical, how can I give the information? And the first UI I made, I said, wanted to be like Minority Report, which had come out that year. (laughs) And, you know, like you're just dragging and dropping things like this. And they said, we can't do holograms. So I said, I don't want it to be a hologram. I want it to feel like a hologram. And so I showed them how to drag and drop something. I showed them one simple example of drag and drop using a framework, which today is called Sencha. And then previously, that was EXTJS. Previous to that, it was Yahoo Extensions 0.33 Alpha. And that was the one that we launched our user interface with because it was so much easier than like making your own UI. We basically had a desktop app in a browser and it had drag and drop. And I told people, it's like they're pulling up their sleeves, 
reaching into the computer and moving things. And that's how they want to think. Like, I did this. I made this. Mm -hmm. Me. I want them to go to the salesperson and go, I'm in charge of this. I control this. I want them to say to the web developer, I don't need you. This is... This was key. And then I thought there's more to this design. We need a community where they can like pat each other on the back and compete with each other about how great they are. And so I was in charge of the community for several years there. And we built five different iterations of it until we like really, really nailed it. And it eventually became the most important selling point for Marketo was you're joining a community and that community is Marketers United. And then also I became responsible for the documentation of the site. Again, this was something that no one really cared about. I love getting responsible, becoming responsible for things that nobody else cares about because then you can make it amazing. And we made the most amazing documentation site. And then for years, people said, it's so easy to learn. It makes me feel so smart. It makes me feel so skilled and that it's funny even today, if you go to app.marketo.com slash ABC, the, my 404 page is there. And it was, it's to put personality into it. I wanted these people to feel like work doesn't have to be a grind. It can be enjoyable. And the most, my favorite compliment people gave me while I was at Marketo was, thank you for my career. I didn't have one before Marketo, and now I do. And all the people that I, I trained the first 50 customers and all of them have gone on to become chief marketing officers or most of them. And I've really, I really enjoyed that time, invented a lot of things, built a lot of teams along the way. I also filled in a bunch of different places in the company. They had lost their head of product marketing. So I filled in for six months while they found somebody else. There were all these different departments that lost people and you know, I would help them. I would walk around the building late at night to see who is still there. And I would just help them with their problems. Because in my design, doing that, later I knew that I would have a favor to ask. Or I knew that if I found out what they were doing and helped them, I could sprinkle in some good design into what they were doing and it would make what they're doing better. Every touch a designer has in the company is a chance to help them have a better design. So that, that was a great experience. And I had left there after nine years, mainly just from stupidity. I was, somebody had given me advice of like, follow your joy. And that's terrible, terrible advice. What you should do is optimize for money and then <laughs> make enough money so you can retire. And then you follow your joy. <laughs> financial independence is like oxygen. You cannot live without financial independence. Otherwise, you're just at the mercy of the market. Invest your money when you're young, tie it to like the NASDAQ or S&P or whatever, make money, get the job with the most money. Now, <laughs> you don't always know which one is going to give you the most money, but that is a key factor. And very often in tech, you have to switch jobs to make more money. If you get hired as an intern, they're not going to promote you with the same speed that they would if they just brought in somebody new. It's a bizarre thing to not keep people 
Like you want to keep people who have been with the company. It doesn't really make sense, but they don't. And this is the design of HR and promotions. And, but that's my advice to my former self is optimize for money. I would have a lot more today and I would be in a much more, like I could do more what I want, not what I have to do mm-hmm. if I had focused more on money. So I left there. I went to Engageo, built some good things. But at the time I realized just being great, which just so you know, I, I'm great, right? But that's not enough. It's not enough. You don't have a successful company just because you're great. Just because you make a great product, that doesn't make you a successful company either. There are so many things to have a successful company. You need alignment between sales and technology and training and marketing. And if any of these things goes awry in a startup, the startup will fail. Right. And I I had some great product things there, but it it wasn't bound to succeed. I've done a lot of different things since then, different startups. I've been mentoring more, doing executive coaching for a few different people, which I find really fulfilling, helping younger people to do well, building teams. The team I built in Treasure Data, I just love that team. They were so productive and so self-sufficient. All I was doing was mentoring them on how to be better leaders, but they were they were just crushing it. But that led me into how do you design a team? How do you design an interview process? How do you design alignment between engineering sales and executives? How do you design rebuilding an information architecture? How do you design a Figma library? You know, every part of life, I just always think, how can this be arranged better? Better. Yeah. If you start with that question, it feels like your career has, you know, even when you started as a secretary, you were designing things right away, even though before you probably realized you were a designer or called yourself a designer. One of the things a lot of that, it's not that common, but growing up, I was tech support for my family. So like, (laughs) The telephone's not working. The TV's not working. And eventually the computer, you know, and my first computers, I built myself out of parts. But whenever something wasn't working, anything, I was the one that got called. And it led me to a particular vision of so many things are built to fail. So many things are built to be confusing. Like, why did they put this here? When I put it over here, it would be a million times easier. Why am I struggling to reach this plug? If it was on the other side, it would be super easy to get to. Who decided to put it here, right? And being tech support for my family gave me a few key things. A few like Uber personas that I use forever. A combination, like my father is one of those personas. He hates computers. He thinks they make him feel stupid. He thinks that they're not just intimidating, they're rude. They're mean. They're bullies. That most computers are bullies. And that when things go wrong, they blame him. And he has to use computers for his job. But like, that's how he feels. And whenever he shows me something and I look at it, I'm like, yeah, they didn't need to write that error message that way. They could have explained it. You know, they could have done a little bit more. Right. And that's that's one piece. The other is empathy, that if you're trying to fix something for someone, you have to 
You have to be methodical and go through the steps. And that when you're doing, going through the steps and you're, you're almost like slowing life down step by step by step. And when you do that, the empathy starts to reveal itself for multiple people, not just the user. Oh, he tried to click here. Oh, then this happened. Oh, then that happened. Right. And also for the engineer, oh, this plug is over here because of this. That's why I need to click on it. Okay. Right. And when you slow it down to that methodical step by step, the world becomes a lot clearer. Everything is like the light turns on. And then that's how you get good at design is by slowing everything down and going step by step, piece by piece. And I think a lot of designers just jump so fast into like what icons we should use or what color palette or, you know, like what it should look like without really thinking through, well, how many of these are there and why, why would they have them? And what are they going to do with this? What do they do with it after? And they just go too fast. And so that's one of the things I look for, but that's, that's part of it. You know, that empathy um, and to me, it all starts back then of like, if you can be tech support for someone, you know, you really get to know not only the system, but the people and the frustration. And you start to appreciate when something is done really nice. When something is done well, you're just like, wow, that's, that's really taking it in a new and interesting direction. And you start to collect all of those good patterns and say, why don't I do it in that cool, interesting way too? I can relate in that I'm also tech support for my family. And when people feel challenged and I am going through this step and I'm like, I, I go, I, I can relate to what you go through. It's like, wow, this is, you know, it's like, hey, I'm a designer and I find this somewhat challenging. So how much more so as someone who's not tech savvy at all? Like this icon doesn't tell me anything or like, yeah, this, this error message is not useful at all. And I have to go Google it now. And like, you're like, you're asking someone else who doesn't know tech to make that leap to Google this. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, I, I get it. <laughs> People don't even necessarily know how to Google properly. Like what the words that they choose. Right. I, I remember this thing they did. I worked one year at Intuit and they had a test. They gave you a Timex digital watch in a package, $30, and it was sealed. And they said, okay, everybody, we're going to have a contest. There's about 50 people in the room. Whoever can set the current date and time right, on your watch wins this gift card for 50 bucks. And I was like, okay. And they said, there's instructions in the box. You do not have to read them if you don't want to, but you, sh you do have to open the instructions. That's the minimum. You have to just open the instructions. After that, do whatever you want. So I said, no problem. So I first tried to open it up and a good minute goes by, nobody's opened up the box. It is, we didn't have a scissor and the tape, it was just very frustration packaging, right? And everyone's just like using their fingernail to try to get underneath that that tape. Finally, we like, I mean, one person was smashing the thing on the desk. So we were all in a bad mood for the first minute. Then we get the thing open and I open up the instructions and it was like one of those tests of how many times you could fold a piece of paper before, you know, it goes. 
It was like open, 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 open. And it was this huge map. And the font size was like a 0.1, you know, point font. And I'm trying to look at it. What I realize is the instructions were not designed as here's the Japanese, here's the English, here's the Korean. No, it was here's step one. First, Korean, then Japanese, then English, Portuguese, you know, Spanish, blah, 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 blah. So all of the English was interstate, like it was always the seventh line of every step block, which made it like impossible to read. <laughs> and the pictures made no sense whatsoever. And it was double-sided. I was like, who is responsible for even making this? And I said, forget it. I understand interfaces. There's not that many buttons. How hard can this be? So I just start methodically going through step-by-step every possible combination of clicking. Clicking, and keep in mind, it's not just clicking. It's clicking or long clicking. So those are Mm -hmm. two different gestures. And the guy who came in first, I think was like eight minutes. And the... I came in third, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, and there was, it was like at the end of my decision tree of all of the different things that could possibly be clicked on. So maybe a little bit lucky, but the guy in the front said, this is a, a another kind of watch, 25 bucks. And he just went like this and he goes, okay, I don't even have instructions. And it's just like, here's the date and time. Right. And they both had batteries and this watch had all sorts of features and people aren't going to use those features. And this is just a perfect example of how it's the worst possible design in the world. That it was just terrible. And I've co- I collect horrible designs. The BlackBerry server, that was a UI. It had a menu that went off the screen, both top and bottom. So the only way to actually use it is you need an enormous monitor with a very <laughs> high resolution. Otherwise, there was just no way because it was it was just off screen and there was no way to get it on screen. No amount of scrolling helped you. And you know, I collect these things or collect bad patterns, but each one of those to me is, it's like a bad law. Like there are laws that discriminate you know, to me, equity is a big deal. And there was somebody the other day saying, we should just hire the best candidate. And I was like, well, that assumes that everyone is starting from the same place. But if you grow up in Oakland, California or Flint, Michigan, you're being poisoned on a daily basis from the day you're born. And that you go to a school that runs out of paper and that the teachers don't know what they're doing and that there's gun violence everywhere and drugs and there's lack of investment in the community. And do you really expect that child to become the best candidate? They need help. And there's laws that literally make it more likely that minorities lose out. I was just listening to the New York Times Daily podcast today, and they were talking about a a school that has like institutional racism built into it by design. Right. And there's laws and elections that further that the Supreme Court is dismantling rights that have been built up for generations. And what are we doing about any of these things? 
Anyway, the point that I'm making is that I'm, I look at bad decisions as bad design. And I'm trying to teach the world that take responsibility for the design for the future and not for selfish reasons and not for status quo reasons to, we could have nice things. Our world can be a lot nicer. We can have food for everyone. We can cure cancer. We can, we can stop climate change. We can have equity. We just need to design the rules to be more optimal. The, the story I was telling you about my first job at Sony, I don't know if I should repeat the entire yeah, story. Yeah, it's a, such a great story. I mean, you, it's such a great example of, you know, you applying the why and the design thought into, you know, your job, your, you know, one of your first jobs. My first job, and this is pre-internet, this was 1994, was at Columbia TriStar Television Distribution at Sony. And to get that job, you literally, I literally just walked around Manhattan. There was no hot jobs. There was no Indeed. There was no place to look. I just, I didn't even know how classifieds work. I just walked around Manhattan. But this job was basically being a secretary for guys who would sell TV shows like Ricky Lake and Seinfeld and Friends to different cities. And so there were two things that I saw that they wanted me to do. One was a mail blast in which they handed me a stack of paper, a stack of envelopes, and a typewriter, and said, you have a month to do this. And what I noticed was that they all had computers, but none of them turned the computers on. And so I turned my computer on, which they thought was weird. It was Windows 3.1. It was Windows 95. It was not even out yet. And I went to Radio Shack and bought a copy of Act, which was one of the first contact managers. And I spent a week just typing in everybody's address. And they said, you really should do this in the typewriter. It's going to be better. And I said, don't worry, you'll see it. You'll see my design when it's done. And then I used Microsoft Word for Windows 3.1 and did a mail merge with Act. And they had a laser printer there. They had no idea how to use it. And I gathered a couple of people around and said, look, And it was the most miraculous thing that they had ever seen. As the pages came off the printer, each one with a different name in the deer and a different address and a different thank you from the right person and all of the information there. And then getting Avery labels and printing out 20 labels per sheet and then just putting them on the envelope, it blew their minds how a month's worth of work can be done so quickly. And they thought they would have to type in all of the addresses every time into ACT. I was like, no, I just had to do it the one time and you never have to do it again. You only need to do the Delta. And that blew their minds. And then there was another thing they asked, which were these sheets in a file cabinet that said how much the uh, shows like Friends or was selling for in a particular market in a particular year. And so I put all of that information into a giant Excel sheet because I didn't know how to use a database and wrote code to, to interface with it, which my code, I'm not a programmer, was horrible. It was 12,000 lines of if-then-else-if statements. And somebody at Microsoft helped me and translated it into two lines of code, which is a lot better. And there was a little VBA macro. So you chose the city, you chose the show and you chose the year and it would just take you to the correct cell. 
And that completely changed the way they thought about paper, the way they thought about printing out things, using file cabinets, getting information. I installed on their little network a program that you would think today is like Slack. It was it was just instant messaging between local computers. I think it was called Land Talk, and that just blew their minds. They used to just scream. They used to just scream, <laughs> "Hey, Mary, get me this thing!" And now it was just like they would just type it. They would type things while they were on sales calls, and then you know, like, "Hey, look up who the this person is." You know, like in an encyclopedia, and because we didn't have Wikipedia at the time, and. Every single time I did this, they started using the computers more and more. And all of this, it wasn't automation. It was, it was design. It was, there was technology available that they didn't use. So by using it, I'm not inventing any technology. I'm not inventing. I mean, the user interface literally had three things in it. For ACT, I just used ACT. For mail merge, I just used the mail merge. I didn't design any user interface. I just use the technology available to me to design an experience for them. This is one of the reasons I, I've always liked UX. It wasn't always called UX. You know, it, was, it was HCI for a long time, human factors for a long time. Then it was like UI design for a while and then UX design and now product design. But to me, it's always been about my favorite has always been UX design. It's always been about how do you make decisions that create an environment where people can do things better, not always faster, but better. And better, faster is often better, but how can they do things in a way that makes them feel better, that makes them wiser, that makes their decisions smarter, that makes something last longer? How do we make decisions that pollute less, that give equity to people, that make people feel proud and not stupid. These are all the things that when I think about what I've been doing this whole time, that it's designed. When I first got started, you know, I was the CEO of my own company and I didn't know the word design. I just knew decisions needed to be made. And so I was making those decisions. And we made a lot of first things. If you think of like, global and local navigation, like I invented that. Now, does that make me any money? No, it makes me zero dollars. And this company lost me a ton of money because I was not a good business person at the time. There was other things like sh the way shopping carts work. I invented a bunch of pieces of how to do that for a company called Granger, made them a fortune, even though we only charged them, I think 250,000 or something. And all of these things were to me just how do I use the technology that is there available to me to create a good experience for the people who are using it? I didn't even realize there was a job called interaction designer until I was 32 in uh, 2004. And that, that job had no product manager. So I was doing product management and design. I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't know anything. Nobody's ever taught me anything. I haven't had mentors. It's the reason that I mentor. I, I don't, I think I could have achieved a lot more if I had somebody helping me and guiding me along the way. And so I want to create fewer of those people. And I want to create more people who think the way that I think. That's why I blog. That's why I mentor. That's why I coach. 
is because I want more people who think this way in the world because I think it makes better products. I think it makes better experiences. I think it makes a better society. But I didn't know about design until very late. And I've been mixing product management. Marketo, I was the product manager and designer and the trainer and the desktop support guy and the CSS guy for two years before we started hiring other people. I think that education systems for designers now, they're not teaching them any of the stuff I'm talking about. I don't know what they're doing. They're teaching them how to do ethnographic research, how to put sticky notes on a wall and do a affinity diagram. I, I don't care about mood boards. None of that matters. I want somebody who's going to say, I'm going to look into these details and think creatively about what is available to me and how can I arrange it in a way that helps all of us together. And they're not teaching any of that. They're not even teaching you how to use Figma properly. For years, I used PowerPoint as my design tool and I used it. I used the crap out of it. It was basically making storyboards, but they were animated, like a hand would move, it would click, menu would drop down. Everything was... It was like watching a movie of a user interface. And I used the crap out of PowerPoint to do that. It's a great tool. But then Dylan Field came to my office at Engageo and said, I got this new program. I want you to try it. And I looked at it and saw the multiplayer use of Figma. And I was just like, this is great. And I switched to that and never looked back. But they're not teaching that in education and schools. I don't understand what's going on. There's some great books like About Face, where I have multiple copies. I've probably bought 20 of them over the years and given them to people. They're not teaching that in schools either. I don't know why there's this point of view of designers to stay uninformed, to stay weak, to not engage as a peer to product managers and engineers, to, to go on a trip with them not just be strapped in the back seat like a baby. You know, we're not the aesthetics people. We're the how it works people. Yes. And I mean, that that requires, uh, you know, you, you've put together pieces, you know, just listening to your story and journey, like th- that requires an awareness of what's out there as well, right? Like a designer who's not even aware of the technology and what's capable, they're really selling themselves short in terms of coming up with a creative solution. There's designers who, let's say a month ago, do you remember when Figma updated their auto layout UI? Yeah, yeah. So it was like a week after that. And I was like, you know, this is cool, this is cool. And a bunch of designers were just like, oh, I haven't even tried it yet. I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean you haven't tried it yet? There's, a, there's this exciting world <laughs> with all these people making all these things. Every single idea I've ever had has been influenced by something else that I was using at the time. Marketo was influenced by this IBM tool called Rational Rose. The way that it worked is influenced (laughs) by that. That another part of Marketo was influenced by Trello. I I loved Trello, right? It was great. And then when I was at Engageo, it was influenced by a company called Lever, which has this great applicant tracking system. And I was stealing a bunch of ideas that they had. I thought it was great. Every single time I design, I'm looking at something else and getting influenced by it. If there's new software out there, designers should be all over that. It's imagine that you're a fashion designer. 
Are you going to be looking and getting influenced by other things in the world? If you're not, I don't even know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, I knew a fashion designer and she had to travel around the world to, to get inspired and influenced. You know, this was before all this internet, you know, you can easily get, you know, all, all this information, but, but yeah, she was always traveling in the world to get inspired and get ideas. So. I tell people a lot, every great idea is a combination of two other things, two unrelated things like, oh, I understand what penguins are. I understand what Twitter is, but think about Twitter for penguins. And all of a sudden you combine things and a great idea emerges, but also Every great idea starts off, it's a terrible idea. Every great idea does not come instantly formed, right? It needs work. You have, to, you have to put effort into it. But if you're not filling your mind with different things, designers are not reading books. They're just reading up some medium articles. Like, I feel like I'm losing this war and I don't know what to do about that other than keep mentoring, keep coaching, keep talking to people like yourself and keep spreading the word that design with a capital D can change the world. Yeah. Well, I, I could go on for hours, but you know, in the interest of just a podcast interview, I'd love to have you back, but this has been a great episode. I love hearing how you think about design and, you know, it also informs, you know, one, it kind of validates how I think about design and some of the points I totally agree with you, but you've also given me other considerations, you know, how, how much deeper design is. And when designers are not in the room making the decision, that design decision gets made by other people by default, and then that creates side effects. Absolutely. Yeah. Glenn, thank you so much for being on the call and sharing sharing your a bit of your journey with us as as well as your your insights and knowledge. It's my pleasure. This was a lot of fun and I'd be happy to come on. We didn't even touch on like advice for new designers and Oh, we're going to do part 2. <laughs> I don't want to take up all your afternoon. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.